You are on Max's Island, a podcast by Meet Max Power. On Max's Island podcast, you'll hear the lived experiences of people who choose to live life a little differently. It might be a story of when they took time out and dared to do something crazy. Perhaps they made a decision to leave it all behind and follow their dreams. Or maybe they just stopped listening to what other people thought and did what was right for them. This experience becomes a story that is part of them and one that you need to hear. So, now that you're on Max's Island, listen to the wisdom in these stories and you too will be inspired to do what you have always wanted to do. Today on Max's Island, I'm joined by Lisa Dobrin. Lisa is the CEO of the WA AIDS Council. Welcome to Max's Island, Lisa. Thanks, Max. Great to be here. Lisa, on Max's Island, we tell stories about that time in your life where things changed, where something went a little bit different, where you made some decisions to do things certain ways. When's that time in your life that that happened? First of all, I want to say it's such a privilege and an honour to be um, on Max's Island. Thank you for the opportunity. It's a really great question and one that I've spent a bit of time reflecting on. There's been a lot of times in my life where there's been some adversity or there's been some challenge and there's been pivotal moments, turning points, where uh, the trajectory I was on or the pathway I was on was different to where I felt I was going or where I thought I was going or where indeed I felt I wanted to go. And one of those was most recently, which was probably the time and the journey that preceded my employment at, um, at WAC. And it involved a time where I was out of work for nine months. And the experience can be summed up by saying, I went from feeling like an imposter for many years to finally realising my true worth and finding out that I'm enough with all, without the things that I f- felt made me enough. See, that's really interesting because I know you've had a very successful career and that a period of time out of work would make you reflect and realise that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it was a fascinating journey, um, one that a, a good friend and mentor of mine describes as the time when she witnessed me being very much in an oasis. And that oasis lasted for a bit over a year, probably about a year and a half, but it, it included a period of unemployment for nine months. And as someone who has had a very strong work ethic, has always prided themselves on how, how hard I work and being very successful in all the things that I did from a work perspective, I fu- suddenly found myself without that identity and without attachment to the things that I felt made me important, the things that, that made me of value, the things that made me of worth, or more importantly, or more accurately, I should say, the things that I projected that the rest of the world felt made me have worth and value. And what were those things? The, the attachment to a very high-paying job, the attachment to a brand-new car every 
40,000 Ks or every one to two years. The corporate clothes, the heels, the title, the, the attachment to telling people that I work in an industry where we do good, the attachment to the fact that I contribute and that I'm a somebody because I get up in the morning and I go to a certain place and I give to people and people want to talk about that giving and then I go home and I get to distract during that work day and I think less about what's really important and more about what I think you think is important. It's interesting, just a little segue. I've just been away for four days with mates on a golf weekend and I've got to say, coming back to work was really difficult. Normally, I've never never had a problem with that. You know, you, you have your, your time off and relax. But as I, in a similar position to you, and start to realise the things that really matter in life, coming back to work was really difficult this time, even though it was only after four days of just shutting stuff out and just doing stuff for yourself. And it's, it's, it's we, we often think that's self-indulgent, but it's actually good therapy it's it's good health management for yourself yeah absolutely and for me you know I realized that in this period of time that I I wasn't working and it's really important to qualify that by saying that I made false choices around that so I went through a period of time where I could have got a job and I knew I was very employable and that there were people who would have loved me to be in their in their workplaces but I had come to a point in my career and I suppose in my life where I realised that I no longer wanted to work for people or with people that I no longer believed in, that I wanted to work for people where their talk absolutely matched their walk, where there was congruence and there was alignment and there was consistency and that the things that people were saying and the actions that they were taking complemented. And a mate of mine says, it's about closing the say-do gap. And in that period of time, I realised that the say-do gap in terms of some of the places that I had worked in my past and for some of the leaders that I had worked with, albeit that I had learned an extraordinary amount from all of them in one way, shape or form or another, I realised that I only wanted to work in organisations or with people or in cultures that absolutely aligned with my values and with my principles and, and in a way that I saw that people were absolutely living those values and living those principles and that say-do gap was not that wide. Really interesting you, you talk about others you've worked with and people who, that don't you know, walk the walk and um, their say-do gap is, is large potentially. I always talk about uh, there will always be a market for leadership books and organisational books because the one thing that's consistent in, in all theories around management and leadership is the human being. And they can be so different. And not everybody performs consistently, authentically, in a way that has that say-do gap be, becoming narrower. And because of that, different organisations will react in different ways. It's simply because of people. So I think there's always opportunities for for people to be looking for for new ways of doing things, but really it's about the individuals in those organisations. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So for me, um, the, the the period that preceded, I suppose that that time off was was one where you know I just completed an MBA, which I self funded, which I was you know extremely proud of. 
And I just got to interrupt there because, you know, I spent some time on a board with you when you were doing that, and I know how it consumed your life. And you and you were so proud that you were self-funding and that you were being independent and and doing it, and you, you committed yourself wholeheartedly to it. And it was very, very obvious. So it, you know, I, I can really appreciate how important that process was to you. Yeah, th thank you for that validation acknowledgement. It was. It was something, you know, I'm someone who comes from a background, I've been very, very blessed and very fortunate that uh, organisations uh, such as Mission Australia and Identity Aboriginal and others in, in, my early, in my early career who invested significant amounts of not just money and resources but time. And there were leaders who absolutely supported me by opening doors and opportunities for, I think at Mission Australia I was there for six and a half years and I had nine roles in that time and they were all moves across and up and I went from being a TAFE prac student to to being the inaugural business development manager for, for Mission Australia then got replicated at the time across across the rest of the country or some of the country and those were the opportunity that I was I was given because people saw great potential in me and they were inspired by my quest and my my my, my seeking for uh, development personally and professionally and spiritually and emotionally and, and, and around my well-being as well as my my skills so I'd had a number of opportunities to go to university and I had I had deferred from those um, because I, I kept getting either promoted or I moved countries and and so I had and this speaks to this 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 um, awakening for me about what being enough really was and what being enough really is and the worth that that I have I realized in that time with letting go of all of the attachments to the material and external things that I felt would fill the big hole in the soul that I have internally. And so I always had this, this belief that if I just got a tertiary qualification, even though I've got lots of letters after my name, that I would suddenly become enough. And I have to tell you that when I got the letter that said I actually got into the MBA, which I actually first got into in 2008, I actually realised that that just made me feel enough right there because someone saw that I had the worth of getting into uh, to something as prestigious as a master's without an undergraduate. And when I, when I finally started my master's, so I, I defer from that, and then, then I actually started my master's in 2016. That year was one of the hardest years I've had in, in probably a couple of decades. I had some, some significant health things that happened whilst working full time, whilst being on um, boards, uh, whilst uh, trying to incorporate my own charity uh, in a very high pressure day-to-day -day job, as well as relationship breakups and new relationships and all, all kinds of things going on in my personal and professional life. And I start this MBA, which I'm self-funding, and, and it was very different to what I thought it was going to be. In what way? So the year didn't pan out as I hoped it would, right? I, I suddenly found out that there was, there was some stuff in my health that needed to be addressed and, and that was a very challenging time for me. And that went on for about the first year and a half to two years of, of my first two years of, of my studies. I was going through some some challenges at work in terms of like most of us, you know, work was very was was very pressure. I had a had a job that I loved. Like any workplace, you know, there, there's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of stress that sometimes comes with those jobs. I worked a lot of hours, so I'm trying to balance learning how to study as a first time student in my you know in my early 40s, as well as deal with some health stuff that came up and then some relationship the stuff that came up. And there's me that all I wanted to do was start this this 
this degree and you know prove that, that that made me enough right but all these other experiences that were happening concurrently actually they were the things that started to develop this greater level of resilience and this greater level of of challenge and this greater level of of learning it was less about the theory what actually happened for me I just to segue but I thought I was going to study a master's and all these people were going to be in the room and I was going to feel less than all these people and all these people in the room were going to make me feel inferior by virtue of I just feel like I'm never enough, right? And I'm not worthy to be there. And by paying for it myself, I think that, that empowered me that I actually was, you know, I was working hard and I was like, I can contribute to this and, and I have independence around that. It wasn't, it wasn't linked to an organisation or, or, or to a scholarship. I actually had the freedom to do that myself. But what I thought was going to happen was these amazing lecturers were going to tell me things I didn't know. And what actually happened was I realised I knew far more than I anticipated. And that actually I often became one of the people in the room because I was one of often the few people in the room who maybe was in a leadership role and actually had been leading teams. A lot of people were, were stretching up, if you like, or were, were, um, there were certainly some people who had, who, had, um, who had roles that were bigger than mine and, and had lots more leadership manager experience. But I thought that was going to be in the main and it wasn't. And I found that I could actually be uh, of great use and service to a lot of my peers and a lot of my, my colleagues and my networks in that... I actually had been living, I suppose, walking the, the leadership journey and the management journey for, for, for a couple of decades and a lot of them were at the beginning of that journey. So where I thought suddenly I was going to learn all this knowledge that I didn't know, what it actually did was it gave me these paradigms and these frameworks and these theories, some of which I didn't know the names to but I intuitively did or I had been doing for many years just by virtue of how I lead and manage and it gave me you know it gave me a language that and a framework to be able to you know hang those practices off but people said you know this stuff already Lisa but I didn't realize that I did so th so that was one key component was around you know the formal learning and it's true with uni people said once you nail the formula of how to write an, an assignment and you get all those key foundation blocks actually if you put in the energy and the effort and you do the work it will write itself but what became more apparent was the juggling of all of those priorities, the, the, the blood, sweat and tears of writing assignments, the being up till midnight or two in the morning to get an assignment done to the quality and level that I thought it deserved, the determination and the grit that I didn't realise I was going to need in order to balance all of those priorities at the same time. That was the stuff that started to develop my sense of worth and my sense of value and my sense of what's important as opposed to what grades I got for each unit. So when you got the letters MBA after your name, did it change anything? Great question. There's six letters all my life I thought if I got would make me finally enough that I could finally stand shoulder to shoulder, maybe not because I'm a bit shorter than most people on the planet, but shoulder to shoulder with most people and feel worthy and feel like I've earned my place in society, right? And that I've, that I've, I've made up for the failings of, and defects of my past and that I've finally become enough. Those three, well, those six words, those six letters, I should say, are two blocks of three. One was MBA and one was CEO. And I'm one of those privileged, blessed individuals, for whatever reason, who has been graced with, with the uh, competency, the capacity, the drive, the skills, 
the strategic thinking, whatever it is, all of those things to be able to attain those six letters. But the irony is it was the nine months between getting MBA and getting CEO that actually filled the hole in the soul and gave me finally the moment of clarity of what was important, what was enough and what, me, what made me finally accept that those things aren't actually important and what is important was how I got there and the journey to getting there, not the actual letters once I got them. So in those nine months, what was the highlight and what was the low light? I'll start with the low light, even though I'm very optimistic. I'm a, I call myself a, an optimistic realist because I'm, I'm, I'm really in, I, I'm aspirational and I like to be inspired and I like thinking about the future and I have, I'm full of hope and glass half full. But I'm a realist and, and, a, and a great dear friend of mine taught me many years ago, early in my career. She looked me in the eye and she said when I was, when I was talking about the injustice of something that I saw in community and I saw in a workplace, and she said, Lisa, there's how it should be and then there's life. And so that realism for me is life happens all the time, but so does magic. So the lowlights were many and it wasn't just the nine months of actually being unemployed. It was the time that preceded that, which I'm not going to go into, but there were some extraordinary challenges that I had never experienced in my life and I never anticipated experiencing in my life and I hope I never experience again. So I'd come on the back of, of some really, really, really challenging stuff that, that absolutely pushed me to the edge on some days and made me question everything that I thought I knew about my working world and I thought I knew about how things really worked and what I thought about what people were capable of doing and what was fair and what was just. And I'm really okay with advocating for that, for all of the individuals and communities that blessed to support in my career currently and past and hopefully in the, in the future. But I never, I never expected to experience that again in my life as a professional and in a context where uh, I just didn't see it coming. So, so I'd come through this period and then I decided I'd take a bit of time off. But I never thought it would last for nine months. So I was living on savings. Now, with someone who has MBA after their name, has earned you know, really, really, really high income in the past, has had, had the car and had the clothes and all of that, to suddenly wake up one morning and realise that I don't have to go to work, or in fact I don't have a job to go to, at first was, was kind of exciting and was kind of freeing and liberating. And I had the money behind me, I'd saved hard, etc. But then that went on for a month, and then that went on for two months, and then that went on for three months, and that ended up being nine months. And the lowlights within that were, there was, I can tell you, there was many, many, many days that led to weeks, if you accumulated the days, where I laid, I'm happy to tell you this, because I, I do believe Brene Brown's vulnerability is our greatest strength, where I laid on my floor fetal in tears, wondering what the hell had happened, how I got here, how in the blink of an eye and a flick of a switch and the flip of a coin, life can change. Like, I mean radically change. And suddenly it was quiet and it was still and there was no one there because everyone else 
was going to work. And at first people were supportive of me and people were always supportive of me, By the, you know, to be fair. But reality is, it's like anything. You're experiencing a grief and a loss and at first people rally around you and they want to make you dinner and they want to take you out and they want to look after you. But life then goes on, right? And so it just becomes the new norm, like COVID has. I experienced my own COVID, my own social isolation, my own loss of income, my own loss of identity. I experienced my COVID before COVID. The difference was, and I'm not trying to compare because I don't think that's helpful, but the difference was I was the only one going through it. You know, and it was people like yourself who have been through similar experiences in the past who really understood and identified with the pain of waking up in the morning and not knowing what your day was going to look like. And I remember walking through Yanship National Park on my own and this was one of the biggest low light and the points where I didn't know what was going to happen next was I was walking through and I was on the ghost trail and everyone has done that it's about a 13k trail and I was going through and I just felt so detached and dissociated from from life and I just felt really lost and I just I didn't I didn't know what to do and I'm in the middle of this on my own in the middle of this pathway right in the middle and I just I kneeled down on the floor and I and I, and I cried and I just had that moment of this was not the life I thought I was here to live. And I don't know how I got to this point again. And I've been through points like that. And I was on the floor and I was genuinely on the floor on the gravel crying. And I didn't know if I could go on. I literally didn't know if I could go on. I just was like, I don't know what to do. Like a, a wise friend of mine tells me, and one of my, my mentors says, you know, there's three things you've got to do on any given day, Lisa. That is, you breathe in and out, you put one foot in front of the other and you put your bins out on bin night. And those three things felt too hard in that moment, right? And all of a sudden, I just kind of had that moment of surrender again. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, and I mean out of nowhere, a kangaroo that only could be described as humongous <laughs> appeared in front of me. And this male kangaroo just looked at me and I looked at this kangaroo and I didn't know what to do and I'm crying, like crying, crying, crying. And this kangaroo, I promise you, appeared out of nowhere. And it just walked towards me and it continued to walk towards me. And it stopped within, I don't know, five metres from me. And it just looked at me and I looked at it and we just had this moment where I just believed that something out there told me it was going to be okay. And out of nowhere, one person appeared behind me on this trail that I hadn't seen a single person for that day, appeared and the kangaroo ran away. And it was that moment, that was probably the lowest moment, but it led to, I suppose the high points started to come from there because I believed that something outside of myself, which I choose to call God or the universe or the Tao, came to me to say that there was a reason for the journey I was on. And even though I was in the midst of the oasis, uh, sorry, I was in the midst of the, the desert, the oasis was coming. And it didn't happen straight away, I can tell you, it was still many months until it did. But I just believed that I was given the sign that I needed at that point to say, everything you are doing right now is leading to you where I next need you to be. And I have to tell you that, that so, so the gap between the, you know, the MBA and the CEO was not easy. But one of the things that came out of it was I'm a big movie buff and I love, I love music and I love films. And, uh, and I'm that era where Karate Kid, the original Karate Kid with Ralph Macchio. And I had this moment when I was offered the job at WAC, which happened in February of this year, where... I realised that the nine months in the desert 
where I didn't know I was going to get out. And I say the desert because when I was in the middle of Yanchep and it was a hot day and it was gravel, you know, I was right in the midst of it, I felt like I was literally in the desert. And I'm a big fan of The Alchemist, and I'm kind of jumping around a bit, but, but that's kind of how I work. But my favourite book in the world is The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho. I never say his name, I'm sure. And my concept of, of God comes from that book, which is the universe conspired to help the, the um, protagonist from the, from the book. And it was that moment in that which felt like a literal desert in Yanshep National Park where that kangaroo represented like the oasis that was coming. And so when I looked back retrospectively and I reflected on that moment, that lowest point, it suddenly came to me, the Karate Kid movie, right? So the Karate Kid, he wants to be, you know, he wants to be able to defend himself and he wants to be able to be this master in uh, karate and he wants, to, he wants to find, you know, this wise uh, teacher who's going to teach him how to, how to become the master of his craft. And what ends up happening for those, for those of us, and I know you'd be a fan because we're a similar era, but those who don't know, right, I don't want to ruin the story. Spoiler Spoilers. alert. That's nah, all right. But what happens is he goes to learn karate and the old kooky Japanese guy says, go paint the fence. So he says, what do you mean? He said, go paint the fence. So he gives him a pot of paint, right, and a, and a paintbrush and he starts painting the fences. And he kicks and screams about it and he's resistant and he's ungrateful, he's unappreciative, he doesn't get the point of it, he doesn't see any relevance in it, this isn't what I signed up for, this isn't fair, I'm, I'm paying you for this. He goes back to him, he paints all the fence, you know, he gets RSI, he gets blisters, he's peeved off about it. He goes back to Mr Miyagi, right? Mr Miyagi says to him, go and wax the cars. He says, what do you mean? He says, take the wax get your cloth and wax, you know, put wax on these cars and then, you know, you wax it on and then you wax... We all know the iconic line, wax on, wax off, paint the fence, right? But the thing is, he goes and again, begrudgingly, and he's taught, again, more patience, more tolerance. He's taught resilience. He's taught growth. He's taught humility. He's taught opportunities to develop other skills that he didn't think were relevant, he didn't think were, were valuable, he didn't f feel we're going to be of any use or service to anyone. But he does it. And eventually he starts to do these things and he gets a different level of value and he gets a different level of appreciation and a different level of experience. And I realised in that moment that that's exactly, inspired thought from the universe, was that's exactly what that nine months and the preceding months were. They were my wax on, wax off, paint the fence moments. Because all of the things that they gave me were everything that whack needed of a leader today. So Lisa, you worked your way out of those nine months. Was the highlight getting the job or was the highlight looking back and going, I've got the job? Look, they're both, they're both significant highlights. Uh, for the record, I have my dream career job. You know, as a kid, I was part of the Live Aid era. I was born and raised and grew up in London. Elton John, Freddie Mercury, Terence Higgins, you know, HIV was a, was a huge thing in the UK. And the roots of HIV and AIDS uh, were significant. And, and I was pretty young. I think I was uh, in my first 10 years of my life. We also saw, you know, the images of, of, of um, you know, young, young African babies dying of HIV. Princess Diana, you know, Lady, Lady Spencer, 
her contribution, other very iconic people, Elizabeth Taylor, other people rallying around, hugging people with HIV who were covered in, you know, in sores and lesions. It was, it was a really, it had a really big impact. In fact, it was the first biggest, I suppose, global crisis that I remember in my lifetime. So I have a strong, you know, strong memories and strong affiliation with with HIV and, and AIDS and and the um, and, and the impact that had on me as a child. And I always wanted to change the world, right? I, I always wanted to change the world. And when I heard Oprah say these words many years ago, and I don't mean to be arrogant, but I identified with this because I knew from my first memories that I I never wanted, you know, I never I never saw myself um, getting married and having kids and living a traditional life. I, I I wanted to save African babies from dying. Like I'm talking about when I was a tiny child. You know, you ask my family, and they'll tell you all I wanted to do was save people and save the world. And I don't know where that came from. It was, it was innate. It was it was um, it was kind of quintessentially who I was. It was from my first memories. So all I wanted to do was help people in need and I wanted to do that in a way that changed the world and made the world a better place. And I have the opportunity to do that in a different way than I maybe anticipated, but I feel like I've come full circle from my first memories as a child in, in that I wanted to, to give back and contribute. And so I absolutely have my dream job and, it, and it's not perfect and, and, and I'm sure that my colleagues and the board and, and my peers and, my, and the people that I'm blessed to work with uh, probably would tell you that, yeah, you know, there's work to be done on all levels, including for me. So I have a dream job and it's a highlight of my career, without a doubt. But the true highlight was not having the job, not even getting the job. So I need to tell you, I got, I, got, I got rejected, if you like. I came second five or six times. Three or four CEO jobs, a couple of exec manager jobs. I was getting closer and closer. People were telling me it was going to happen for me. But, but that level of rejection, which I don't see as rejection now, by the way, but at the time it feels like rejection. I know you've experienced that. And only anyone who's experienced that, when you put your heart and soul into putting together a strategic direction for an organisation, uh, putting together you know, hours and days and weeks of prep for an interview, for getting to know a company from the inside out and then coming second is hard. Coming second, though, six, five, six times is really hard. But each time I grew stronger and each time I grew more hopeful. But I genuinely thought it wasn't going to happen. And this is really important. But my younger sister in London, who's one of my absolute heroes, I've got two sisters and they are both absolutely my heroes. Um, and I wouldn't be here. I literally would not be here without them both. My younger sister in London, I called her in tears after one of the rejections. And I said, I call her Bubsy. Her name's Karen. I said, Bubsy, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Like... I just feel maybe the universe doesn't want me to be a CEO or maybe I'm not meant to be in leadership or management again and maybe I've just been burnt and, may and maybe I'm just maybe this is just not my journey and maybe I'm meant to do something completely different but I don't know what that is and I'm in this desert and, and it's not being revealed what I'm meant to be doing and it was my younger sister who said to me and I feel quite emotional saying this but it was a turning point she said to me and she's three years younger than me from the day that I've known you, this is what you were born to do. And you have spent your life and your career working towards this. You cannot give up. This is what you were put here to do. And I will not let you give up. And you have to keep going. And it was moments like that. And that was a really pivotal moment for me where I just knew I had to keep digging deep. But what happened in moments like that and what happened before I even got the job was I'd resigned myself to I'm enough without a job. I'm enough without investment properties. I'm enough without the corporate clothes in the hills. I'm enough without the fancy car. 
I'm enough without the paycheck. I'm enough without the letters after my name. Because what the people who loved and care about me tell me is when I walk into a room, they say it lights up. And when I walk down the street and smile at someone, it makes a difference. And when I ask someone in a random store how they are, it changes their day. And I realise that that, Tony, is what makes me enough. And that that hole in the soul cannot be filled by anything external or anything material. And it's easy to say that. I used to say that when I had the material and the external, right? But when you're single and you're, an in and you're, a, single, you're a single person without a partner, without children, without family other than one, you know, my older sister lives here with me in WA and the rest of my family live 12,000 miles away. And she's amazing, I'd be lost without her. But when you, when you wake up at three in the morning, scared, and you don't have a partner next to you, and you don't have kids to distract you, and you don't have a job, and you don't, haven't had an income for many, many months, and I can tell you that I got down to $500 in my bank account before I got this job. And you're going, I don't know how I'm gonna pay the bills. In those moments, when you think it's about all the external stuff, to me, it actually came down to who I really was, what I really stood for, and what's really important is my internal world and who I really am on the inside, and it's got nothing to do with the outside. And that validation and that recognition of who I really am came solely and wholly from me and my experience with something that I choose to call the universe or God, and that was the highlight for me of realising whether I work again, whether I have to go on the dole, whether I clean toilets, which I've done before, to make ends meet, I am still enough and I'm still worthy of everything that I stand for. In fact, more, because I don't have all those shiny things to impress you with anymore. I just want to say this quote as well. This is really important. And I heard this from um, Jay Shetty, who is a former Buddhist monk, who's a, a coach and an inspirer, and, and, I, and I love this guy. And he shares this quote from Rumi. And it says, and this is how I lived my life prior to this moment. It said, I am not what I think I am. I am not what you think I am. I am what I think you think I am. And that's how I live my life. Wor worrying about what you thought or what you think I am and that that's what I think I am. And that was when I threw it out, was those moments at three o'clock in the morning when I had to get to that place of whether I've got an income, whether I've got the clothes, whether I've got the car, whether I've got the job, whether I've got any of that stuff, I'm going to be okay. Lisa, thank you so much for sharing that with us. I think the listeners on Max's Island will really appreciate your passion, your heartfelt, moments that you had in that time that you've you've shared with us so thank you very much for being on max's island really love the story i love being your friend love being your peer and good luck with your new position thanks tony thanks again uh, for this you know beautiful opportunity it's uh, moments like this that really are highlights for me where i get to i suppose navel gaze a little bit be a little bit self-indulgent which you give me great permission to do and i really appreciate that but also to have a voice i suppose of hope for anyone else out there going through, whether it's unemployment, whether it's um, loss of identity, whether it's um, loss of income, whether it's loss of knowing what you're meant to be doing and what the point of life is. What I would just say is, you know, for me, it has all been about moments like this where people like you want to hear my story and want to spend time connecting with me. And that is what really the meaning of life is about, right? It's the willingness to show up in my life 
and have experiences, whether they're good, bad, right, wrong, happy, sad, love, hate, and just experience them fully in the present moment. And I really appreciate the opportunity that you give me to do that today. Thank you. We spoke on the bus on the way home from work. He was lost in the details of life. Each day was a blur, all work and no play. And how, how had it turned out this way? He told me his plan, a short-term escape, five weeks on the Bibbulmun track. Go it alone, no one to blame if he finished or fell by the way. Phone and nothing. 